So we're reading from uh, Luke 24, verse 36, to the end of the chapter. And we're up there on the screen, that's great. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of foiled, broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, Now this is what I told you whilst I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Tim, thank you. Beautifully read. That was great. I was just thinking, Jinni, what's God been doing? Slots. Actually, I thought, was it yesterday? Time flies by. I thought Justin Welby's response to the extraordinary news in his own family was an extraordinary way that God's been at work this week. And if you've not read his personal statement, it is worth reading. And if you get a chance, uh, you never know, it might come up in the office or somewhere tomorrow. What, what did you make of what happened to just Archbishop Justin Welby and uh, his line about finding his whole identity in Christ and just the assuredness? It is worth reading if you've not read it. Anyway, enough of that. Let's move on to even bigger things. Let's pray. Loving Father, please would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And then, Lord, will you take these things and so apply them into our hearts and our lives that we would leave this place different from the way that we entered it. And we ask that in the name of Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I heard these words at, uh, recently, in fact, this week, uh, at a funeral service. I don't know what I'll do without him, but the truth is we aren't without him. For that's what life after death means, that you give so much of yourself while you are here to the people you know, to the people you love, to the people that need you, whether you know them or not, that you do not die, you cannot die. There is too much of us that remains. They're lovely words. I ought to tell you they are fictional words because they're part of a eulogy that was from an episode of Silent Witness that I watched with Becca last week. 
The truth is, though, that I have heard words like that very, very often in funerals, as family and friends speak of those who have died. Because almost always these days, funeral services are totally backward-looking. They focus almost exclusively on the past impact of a person's life, the music they liked, their memories, their achievements. And what is missing almost exclusively, except in just a few occasions, is any assured talk of the future, any sense of assurance of resurrection. I find very little looking ahead to a genuine new life after death. And so life after death is for many simply the ongoing impacts of the life I lived in those that I've encountered through my life. And I simply want to ask this question, is that really all that life after death is? That's what my heart says every time I stand there in front of a funeral service. Is this really all that we have when we think about life after death, my memory going on. Do you know, I could not tell you the first names of my uh, great-grandparents. I have no idea what the names are. In three generations, forgotten. That's the reality. This idea that somehow my life goes on and on. My friends, it doesn't. It will be forgotten in a blink of an eye. This passage says a resounding no. That is not all that life after death is. You see, days after his physical death on the cross, verse 36, we're told here that while they were still talking about this, well, what is this that the disciples are talking about? It's easy to think that they've been sat there in this room with their uh, uh, scones and cream and cups of tea talking about the last three years, the joys, the sorrows the amazing things they've seen, the impact that this man's had on their lives, how he's changed them for the better. Oh, this world is such a much better place for him having been here. Is that what the this is that they've been talking about together? No, you only have to go back. You can't see it up there. But if you were to look back, you'd discover what the this is. It's what we had last week. That this is that two disciples have just turned up and said, you're not going to believe it, but we've just seen Jesus, who we saw die, standing with us, talking on a road on the way to Emmaus. You are not going to believe it. And they said about this extraordinary Bible study they just had, where he took them to the beginning of the Bible and went all the way through the Bible, showing how the whole Bible was about Jesus and the fact that he would die on a cross and one day rise again. And so they have been sat sitting there debating it. Are you sure? What did he look like? What did he sound like? Are you sure it was him? Are you sure it wasn't somebody else? What you really mean in the middle of Haggai? It's all about Jesus? Show us. They'd have been debating it over and over and over again. But whatever they debated, by the time they got to verse 34, we're told that they declared with absolute certainty, it is true, the Lord has risen. There is life after death. And now as they're debating, we're told that Jesus stood among them. And it is clearly a dramatic moment. We see it by the reaction. They are terrified. I kind of imagine that they're now, most of them, underneath the table, curled up in the fetal position saying, go away, go away. Because it's this terrifying thing that's just come in the room. There's a ghost. You see, one minute Jesus is not there, the next minute he is there. 
It is not that there's been a knock on the door and then someone has, in the middle of the debates, uh, gone off, opened the door, hi Jesus, come on in, and then they carry on. It's not like that. Jesus appeared to them in a room where the door was locked, we're told in John 20, verse 20. He just appeared. It is a supernatural appearance. He is no longer bound by the restrictions of his natural material body. He is already clothed in his glorified and celestial body. And I want to take a moment, or a bit more than a moment, just to think about who this Jesus is that stands there right now. What they're seeing right now. Why? Because it has enormous implications for you and for me. You see, because what happens to Jesus will happen to us. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What happens to Jesus right now is what will happen to you and me if we are followers of Jesus Christ on the day we are raised to new life. We too will be given glorious celestial resurrection bodies. So I want to state very clearly, Jesus has risen from the dead in a transformed body which will never and can never die again. A body over which death has no power. And he is distinguishable over anything that looks like resurrection up to this point. That is, I could take you to the tomb of Lazarus and there you would still find his bones, even though Jesus said to him, come out the tomb. I can take you to the tomb of Jairus' daughter and there will still be the bones. Because even though they died and Jesus brought them back to life, they did, as C.S. Lewis said, still had all their dying still to do. They were raised, but with bodies that still have to face death. But Jesus is raised in a body which will never have to face death again. Utterly different. See, the point is that our resurrection bodies will be just like Jesus' resurrection body. I have to say these words in a funeral. And uh, uh, I won't be able, or you won't be there when I'm doing your funeral, if I do your funeral. You won't hear the words that I'm saying, so I thought I'd read them to you now, so you get to appreciate them beforehand, all right? So um, just imagine you're lying there. No, don't do that. Anyway, this is what I will say. We have entrusted our brother or sister to God's mercy, and we now commit his or her body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, and listen up, who will transform our frail bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body, who died, was buried, and rose again for us, to him be glory forever. Did you hear it? Who will transform our frail bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body. That is a direct quote from Philippians 3.21. Jesus appears with a new body invested with new powers. We too in Christ will be clothed in new bodies invested with new powers. And actually, I think one of the best passages on this is from 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to it. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35. I wonder, can we just stick the lights on? Because 
I'm about to be an illustration of my own sermon because I can't read my own writing. Thank you. Oh, so much better. I can see what I'm saying now. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35, where Paul's talking about the resurrection. He says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And of course, people do ask that question, don't they? You know, when I'm in heaven, will I be able to recognize people? Will I, will I be able to see them? Or we have that old one, what age will I be when I'm in heaven? Will I have a kind of 20-year-old, you know, six-pack body? Or will I, I don't know. We're asking the question. And Paul's saying, everyone's asking it. What kind of a body am I going to have? And I'm sorry to tell you, verse 36, he says, how foolish. What a stupid question is basically what he's saying. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? And he goes on to say this, when you, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. And then going on, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. He uses this beautiful illustration that our dying and rising will be like a seed and a plant or a flower. Each of us will eventually become that rather shriveled up dead seed that will go into the ground. But out of it will come the most extraordinary, beautiful new body. A fragrance, a beautiful, a glorious flower-like body. I'm not going to say we're looking a lot like flowers, but you get what I'm saying. And the key thing is this, a wheat seed produces what? A sunflower seed produces what? And therefore an Adrian seed will produce what? Adrian. So it will be me. I will be in heaven. When you see me, you'll know it's me. But I'll be different as well. For I will have a new kind of body. And he tells us these four great contrasts. He talks about the body sown and then the body that will be raised. Firstly, the body sown will be perishable. But the new body will be raised imperishable. Our bodies are subject to disease, decay and death. You know that, don't you? Some of you here know that all too well in your own lives. Some of you are feeling the pain of it right now. I'm feeling the pain of it because I can't read very well. My eyes are getting harder and harder to use. But our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. No disease, no decay, no death. They will be utterly impotent to have any effect on our new resurrection bodies at all. We will never, ever again need a walking stick, a guide dog, a knee strap, or whatever you might need. Just imagine that. That your body will never, ever decay. You'll never wake up in the morning with that little thing at the back of your throat. Oh no, I've got a cold coming. You'll never have that. Ever. What an extraordinary thought that is. Our new bodies will be sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Just need to understand that word dishonor. It's basically our bodies that are now subject to the attacks and ravages of sin will no longer be like that. Our new bodies will be free of every selfish desire. We will, our love will come naturally to us. There'll be no guilt, no regrets, no hurts. Imagine that. 
not carrying no more guilt, no more regrets, and no more hurts. It will be sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. If you want to know about weakness, just talk to Guy Price. He'll tell you about my weakness, that I still have not gone back to doing park run after those first three attempts at doing it, needing needing hospitalization almost after the first 300 meters of the first one I did. And I'm too scared to go back. That's the, if I'm honest, Guy, I'll tell you that. It's because I hated feeling as bad as I did after one lap. And I don't want to feel that bad again. I know, I know, I know. But one day, Guy, I need to tell you this, that one day I'll be able to run part run and I will do it with the biggest smile on my face because my new resurrection body will be raised in power. And I just won't tire out. And I won't have fatty deposits where I don't want them to be. <laughs> and he says it will be a natural, it will be a sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. Now I want to just uh, take on that idea of a spiritual body because I think for some of us that might be a bit of a stumbling block. You see, is this arguing for a kind of immateriality, a kind of soul existence? Because I think most of us have been brought up to believe that's what life is going to be after death. It is a bodiless existence. It will be our souls that go on to heaven. Isn't that what most of us have been brought up with? I think I believed that for a lot of my early Christian life. Well, it is very important that you understand this, that we will have physical bodies when we are raised from the dead. That we will have bodies, new spiritual bodies, uh, fitted for our new spiritual existence. But that spiritual existence is not an ethereal existence. We're told that when Jesus returns, it says it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And if you don't believe me, you just need to look at the details of this passage. What does Jesus do? He says to them, look at my hands and my feet, it's myself Touch me and see. And then what does he do? He eats. You see, you can't do that if you're not a physical existence. If the new heavens and the new earth are not going to be physical, then you don't need the kind of body that Jesus has been given. But that is what it will be like. And it's a good job too. Because how does the Bible often talk about heaven? It speaks of it as what? A feast, a banquet. Well, just imagine what it's like. All this amazing, sumptuous food and you can't eat it because you're a floaty soul and the minute you try and put it in your mouth, it just falls to the ground. What kind of an existence is what? It's going to be hell. <laughs> Looking at a feast you can't eat. I just hope there's not broiled fish. I really hope there's not broiled fish. Or at least that's at the other end of the table and I can have something else at my end of the table. You see, the Bible does not teach immortality of the soul. That at the end of life, my body's discarded, my soul floats off to heaven, and heaven is this ethereal existence. The Bible does not teach that anywhere. We have imported that from a Greek way of thinking. You don't realize it, and I didn't realize it. But the Greek philosopher Plato came up with this idea that our bodies were somehow something. It was literally just the encasement for our soul. Our soul is the important thing. And one day, our whole aim is to get rid of the body so that we're suddenly free and released. And so that's what you find in Buddhism and other Eastern religions, that I find nirvana free of the encumbrances. I can't even think what that posh word is. Encumbrances. Something like that. Of my body. 
And we've taken that on board, or we've taken on Hollywood, haven't we? What is the Hollywoods or the, uh, the kind of cartoon version of heaven? It is that I'm swinging away on this lovely swing, on this lovely cloud, with harps just playing in the background day in, day out, as I look down on roads of gold. And I feel bad because it sounds like the most boring existence I could ever think of, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound dull in the extreme that I'm some floaty spirit sitting on a swing for eternity? With heart music, my goodness, heart music. You see, Paul said, when he was facing the possibility of death, he said, you know what, I'd actually prefer to be dead. Actually, not because the pain he was going through was so bad, but because the prospect of being with Christ in heaven was so unbelievably wonderful. I meet very few people who are excited about heaven. And I meet very few Christians who are excited about heaven. In fact, the very few people ever say to me, do you know, I can't wait till I die. The only people ever say to me are those who are in hospital that I'm visiting or in uh, residential homes who have just had enough because their bodies have given up so much and they've had enough of feeling like they do. I rarely heard Christians say, do you know what, I can't wait till heaven. Until they've got somewhat older. And partly I think it's because we're scared that it'll be boring. John Dixon, who uh, has rescued me from feeling like I'm a heretic and bad, also feel the same. John Dixon is a great Bible teacher. He came and spoke here many years ago from Australia. He writes this. In the years after I came to believe in Christ, it always troubled me that I was now meant to enjoy the thought of escaping the physical world and entering a spiritual one called heaven. I love the taste, smell, sight, sound and touch of this world. And here I was being told to look forward to losing those five senses and having them replaced by a spiritual sixth sense. I was not terribly excited about it. Then someone challenged me to point to biblical texts that describe the afterlife as a disembodied nirvana-like bliss. I couldn't. Every passage I turned to challenged the Hollywood version of heaven. It turns out that the biblical kingdom come is not an ethereal place of clouds and ghosts, but a tangible place of real existence is a new creation. Whether or not we gain a sixth sense, I have no idea, but I think we can count on keeping the other five senses. You see, this passage is all about look, touch, see, watch. It is real, it is physical, and that is what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And the great joy that Dixon goes on to say is this, that God has created a wonderful world once, hasn't he? This is an extraordinary world, and there are moments when you see it, when you're down at the beach, or you're up on Dartmoor, or you're going through uh, um, uh, uh, the Lake Districts, or wherever it is, there are moments when you go, wow, God, you are extraordinary. And the resurrection says to us, he can do it again. He can take this world, which is extraordinary, and yet which has been blighted by sin and exploitation, and he can recreate a new heaven and a new earth, which will simply blow our minds. And then he will give us bodies in which we can enjoy it to its full. That is the Christian hope. And the resurrection is the absolute guarantee and pledge that it will happen. Are you excited? 
Do you fancy going to heaven now? Not sure now, are you? (laughs) What's it all got to say to us just finally? Well, maybe it comes in that greeting that Jesus gives at the beginning. Because as he stands among them and says to them, he says to them, peace be with you. In one sense, it's a normal greeting. It's a kind of, hi, how are you? That's the kind of thing we say to each other, isn't it? It's a kind of uh, normal cultural greeting when you enter a room. It's also clearly here a necessary greeting because they are panic-filled. They're probably under the table, as I said, in the fetal position. They need to hear peace. But actually, it's even more than that. And if you look at Luke's gospel and go through Luke's gospel, you discover that the word peace and the word salvation are almost used synonymously. So, for instance, the words of Simeon in Luke 2 in the temple, let me depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. Peace, salvation. The words of the woman, uh, Jesus to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace, salvation and peace. So when Jesus speaks here of peace, he's using normal, necessary terminology, yes. But the context here shows that it's more. Because when he says peace to them, it's in the light of the invitation he makes to them. And what is the invitation he makes to them? Verse 39. Do you not read it? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. What are his hands and his feet? They are evidence of the crucifixion, aren't they? They are evidence of the crucifixion. What is the crucifixion? It is the death of Jesus on our behalf. In Colossians 1 we read, He is making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we need to get this right. You see, if peace for people today means the end of conflict, the end of war, the end of suffering, the end of all sorts of things that go wrong in my life and in the life of this world, if we think that Jesus being called the Prince of Peace is that he's come to sort all that out now, to bring the end of bloodshed and warfare and personal suffering and at the beginning of tranquility and unending nirvana, then you have to say that Jesus' mission was an abject failure if that is what he meant by peace. But if Jesus is speaking of the peace that comes between a holy God and sinful man through his blood shed on the cross, thereby making those who are once enemies of God into friends of God, who might then themselves become peacemakers in their world, well then the gospel record holds together. And actually what it says to us is this, that we have this glorious hope of resurrection, but right now we walk the path of suffering. It is suffering now, resurrection later. Which is why prosperity gospel people and health and wealth uh, preachers really, really wind me up. Because we are not promised that resurrection body in existence yet. We are still in our earthly bodies. And the person I think who helps me most on this is Johnny Erickson Tarder, who many of you will know and probably some of you will not ever have heard of. Uh, But when I was a teenager becoming a Christian in a church, then Johnny was the person we used to see on video back then because Johnny, as a teenager, uh, dived into a swimming pool and broke her neck and became paralyzed from the neck down as a teenager. 
but um, I can't remember which, I think she was a Christian at the time. And uh, she is now, I think she's older than I am, but she's probably late 50s. Is she 70s? 60s? I'm not sure. She looks very good. (laughs) Still paralyzed, but actually also in excruciating pain, actually, most of the time. And uh, she could do nothing for herself. She, although she has this amazing ministry, she preaches all around the world. She, everything from the moment she wakes up to the moment she goes to bed has to be done for her by others. And this is what she writes. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, Standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin. And all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the points when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to. Because God will. That is the difference the resurrection makes. That is the impact the resurrection can have now. As we walk a very tough journey, some of us. Yes, it is weakness now, but boy, there is power to come. Amen.